Merry Christmas. It's here, guys. How exciting. I, Kayla wanted to applaud. You can applaud Christmas. This, this is good. Uh, for those of you who are guests here, I'm a big fan of Christmas. Not as big a fan, apparently, as Jack uh, Irwin, because that sweater was... I'm speechless. I don't have the words. Um, so I thought we'd start this morning, just real quick. Uh, I'm, just, I'm curious, what are your favorite Christmas songs? And I'm, I'm open to about any answer. So like new songs, old songs, classic songs. Um, but if you answer Mariah Carey or Wham, just exit and consider your soul lost. We can't do anything for you. But aside from those two, what are some of your favorite Christmas songs? Somebody had to. Somebody had to do Grandma Got Ran Over by a Reindeer. I wasn't actually even thinking about that. Somebody else said something. Joy to the world. Joy to the world. Silent night. Oh, glorious night. Oh, glorious night, is it? What a glorious night. Oh, holy night. Mary, did you know? I saw, yes, yes. He shall reign forevermore. I don't think I know that one. Does anybody else know he shall reign forevermore? Is that a familiar? So, the Messiah. Handel's Messiah. Very good. What, what, was, what was that over here? Go tell. Really? Go tell on the mountain? I got to tell you, I hate that song. <laughs> I just, I don't like, I, maybe it's a tune. I don't know what it is. But I love that somebody else loves it. Because I've always wondered, why do we sing this song? No one can like this song. But people like that song. That's great. What was that, Beth? Okay, you love it. Well, you're related. It doesn't count. <laughs> one of my favorite songs, one of, my, one of the ones I've had kind of on replay is um, Nations That Long in Darkness Walked. Does anybody know that one? From a late 17th century, or late 16th century uh, author. Well, um, yeah, that, I just like obscure things, which actually heads really well into how we're going to begin the sermon, which is every Christmas I, uh, I like to pick up one of, um, one of the most ancient Christmas hymnals that we have. And it's from a guy whose name is um, uh, Ephraim, St. Ephraim the Syrian. Uh, he lived from 303 to 373, and he is the earliest Christmas hymn writer that we know of. Christmas hymn writer. So they were writing, they had Christmas songs back then too. Um, probably not Go Tell on the Mountain, that heresy happened later. But uh, <laughs> now I have something to pick on. Like, <laughs> um, and I, so I've, I've read his, I've read through, I, I don't know, maybe I had some, but somehow I missed this hymn. He's written 19 of them, and we have them all. Uh, they, they're in Syriac, and so we have to translate it into English, so it's kind of, a, 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 the translations are hard to read. Does anybody have trouble reading King James English? It's a cakewalk compared to Syriac to English, okay? So, but anyway, uh, he wrote 19 uh, Christmas hymns, and I just noticed this one, the, the 14th of the Christmas hymns. This time, for some reason, it struck me, and I was like, Wow, that's a great one. And I want to give you the title because it's great. I need you to be excited about this. Fake it if you must for my benefit, but you have to be excited. This is the title of St. Ephraim the Series, Syrian's 14th Christmas hymn. Infants were slain because of thy birth. 
I just, I just want to know the moment when St. Ephraim, of course, he probably wasn't called, he was just called F or something like that, you know? I mean, but, you know, he stands up and he says, like, Paul comes up to the piano, I want to teach you guys a new Christmas carol. We're calling it, Infants Were Slain Because of Thy Birth. If you don't have a dark sense of humor, you don't get that, but I... I thought that was really funny, and many of you will know this story. This actually comes from Scripture, comes from Matthew chapter 2. If you've got a Bible, find it, Matthew chapter 2. Um, if you're going to use a, if you want to grab a Bible just like I'm using, uh, it, it's right here, but not on that page. Uh, it looks just like this. It's on page 807 and then 808. But here is the story of, of King Herod, and King Herod kills a bunch of in, infants. And this is actually the first, so this is the title, kind of what you'd give as a title, mainly because this is the first line. Infants were slain because of your birth, you giver of life to all. Which is initially less cheery than joy to the world, a little less soothing than, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie, and not quite as buoyant as Jingle Bell's Batman smells. But it is shockingly biblical, isn't it? And it comes from an age, I think, where our Christmas experience, or the church's Christmas experience, wasn't quite swallowed up in some of the sentimentality that it is today. I find, and, and, and you can... I'd love, to, I'd love to have a conversation with you afterwards, maybe if you disagree with me, but I find that the sentimentalizing, that's not right. Somebody help me. You know what I'm saying. Sentimentalizing. Sentimentalizing of Christmas might be one of the most dangerous things we've done to it. And I suggest that simply because if it can be nice and cute and fun, then it's tame. And if Christmas is anything, is anything but tame. And the stories are anything but tame. They're burdened with risk. The risk that God takes coming into the world, the risk that humans take participating with God in the world, the fear of angels and armies and prophecy and all of this is laden with meaning. And I want to encourage you as we move into this last moment where we begin to actually think hard and experience the joys of Christmas Eve services and Christmas mornings and all of that stuff, I want to leave you with this, the intensity of God's love. And that that intensity is very real and very costly. And it costs him and it costs us. And if we lose that, I feel like we lose the meaning of Christmas. There are, I, would, I would put it in three major chunks. The narratives of Christmas are in kind of three main. You have the annunciation bits. So angels show up to Joseph or angels show up to, to Mary. Angels shows up to, to Zechariah and then Elizabeth is pregnant as well. And so you have these moments where Jesus or John the Baptist in that case are announced divinely to these humans and then the babies are born. We have those stories. We've gone over those stories if you've been here the past few weeks. And then we have the stories of the shepherds. You all know that, right? Shepherds keeping watch over their flocks by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared, and the glory of the Lord showed around them. They were so afraid, all of that. 
And then you have the story of the Magi, which happens probably somewhere around two years after Jesus' birth. But we kind of take all of these three big chunks, we slam them together. How many of you have nativities at home? Little nativity sets. Everyone everyone should raise your hand. If you don't have a nativity set that has it all slammed together in some little medieval-looking stable, you're missing out on Christmas sentimentality. (laughs) Um, and so we slam them all together, even though they are, they are sort of disparate. They are, there is separation between them. Um, but I want to go over the story of the wise men today. I think it, I think it matters. And so uh, we'll be looking at uh, Matthew chapter 2. And you probably know, at least to some extent, the story fairly well. You know that wise men came from the east. Very good. To follow the... Oh, wow. These guys are above average easily. And they make their way to Jerusalem, and they enter into Jerusalem, and they find their way either into the Sanhedrin or before Herod's court. I imagine into Herod's court. We don't know the details, but they come and they ask, Where is born King of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we've come to worship him. And the Bible tells us that Herod is bothered by this. I can't imagine why, right? He looks around and says, I'm pretty sure I'm king. Aren't you in my courtroom? Like, what are you talking? And so because Herod, and if you don't know this about Herod, Herod is a bad dude. Like, wicked Middle Eastern dictator will kill anyone who comes close to threatening his power kind of dude. Which is just to say a politician, right? So... Herod is there and he is troubled and all of his court is of course troubled and everyone is troubled. And of course mixed in with all of this is the prophecies that have gone from of old and the people's hope that God would send a Messiah into the world to rescue them from the hands of their enemies. Of which Herod is kind of that. He's a little bit on their side but often not on their side which is just to say a politician, right? And so Herod uh, calls together the experts of the law. And we read here uh, in verse 5, chapter 2 of Matthew chapter 2, verse 5, he calls the experts together and he says, you know, where, where's, the, where's the Messiah to be born? And they tell him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it's written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. You're not the, the, the least important because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Which is a different kind of politician, isn't it? Isn't it? Somebody who wants to tend you and care for you and lead you to places that are cool and safe and are full of food and verdancy. That's a different kind of person, a different kind of leader, a different kind of king altogether. And so Herod, and and here I'll just read the text. So let's look at our scriptures. I'll just read beginning with verse 7. Herod summoned the wise men secretly to ascertain from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, and he said, Go and search diligently for this child, and when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they, were, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy and were going into the house and they they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And then being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their their own country. 
That's fairly familiar ground for us. But I think it's a particularly beautiful scene, which is why we tell the story every year, don't we? We put it on our mantelpieces or on your fireplaces or your panels or wherever you've got space for your nativity scene. You put it up because the story tells us something lovely and we want to dwell in that moment. I think, it's, I think there is actually, in my mind, because I'm so formed by, by what I see, we're so formed by the images that we have, I do think every year of three kings coming to Jesus. Anybody else? I mean, I know there might have been more than three kings I know there might have been less than three kings. It just says that they had three gifts. We don't know how many there were. But I sort of think of this as a small little group. But really, if you think about it, you would have had all kinds of, um, all kinds of people that would have been there in that moment. Because not only do you have the three kings, let's say, these three magi, but you have their servants. And it's a long journey all the way from the east, from Persia, all the way to Israel. And so there would have been beasts of burdens, like donkeys, camels, horses, And there would have been servants to tend all of those things. So it would have been quite a cacophony of people outside of Mary's house. You can imagine them running or walking through the town with this big caravan. And all of the townspeople, of course, are wondering what in the world's going on here. Right? I mean, you can imagine this all in your mind. And just more people kind of gather on until suddenly there's a knock on Mary's door. And Mary opens it up. And she's like, what's up? Right? Because it would have been far more like this than just this kind of quiet little, oh, they just come in real sweet and soft. It would have been noisy and full of people and looking and wondering all around, bringing gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, what does all of this mean? Why is this of such, such significance that not only uh, was it put into the word of God, but so important that we tell it year after year after year. And I think it can be summarized in two very simple points that easily you can take from this place this morning. And the first is simply this, to say that Jesus is king. Jesus is king. Now they fall down to worship him. You saw that there. The word worship is a, a word that we, we translate from you know, Hebrew or Greek in this case into English. We translate it as worship and sometimes we ought to translate it as bow down rather than worship. Because when I say worship you think of something that somebody does toward God. This is probably not what they're thinking. They didn't have a developed Christology. They didn't have the Trinity in mind. But they would have recognized that this is a king and that this king has been divinely appointed. They did travel following a star after all, right? That doesn't happen at every king's birth. It's a big deal. And so they recognize even in this that as they bow down, they are bowing down to not just a king but a special king. A king whose reign extends beyond just Israel proper and even into the region of Persia where they live. And so what we see in their bowing is far less a pious move and far more of a political move. They are pledging allegiance is the closest thing I can attribute it to. To Jesus. Jesus is the king. We are now bowing before him. And we are offering him gifts that befit his royalty. Which leads us to the second point. Which is this. Jesus is king of all nations. That all nations are now going to be swept up in the reign of this king. This king is going to extend his governing beyond just Israel and into the world. And that this will bring about peace. 
Now remember, we, we said the Magi were from where? The east. Persia. Probably Persia, possibly Babylon, that whole region. And if you remember your Bible history, you might remember with me that... Uh, the Persian government and the Babylonian government and really everyone to the east had at one point been Israel's enemy. They had oppressed underneath their boot, slayed their people, salted their lands with salt, taken things, taken taxes, taken money, taken all of this. That these men who are now before, bowing before Jesus are Jesus' enemy. Enemies now bowing before this little infant you can imagine uh, Mary and Jesus standing there at the doorway or into the house. And you can imagine uh, the very, uh, at best, middle class accoutrements that would have been in that building. And here come in royalty, like people who, 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 are, who are regal in their countenance. And they come in before, this, before Jesus, and they bow down before him. And so we see this wonderful inversion, inversion of the powerful bowing to the weak, inversion of the wealthy bowing down to the poor, inversion of the enemy bowing down uh, to the one that they had oppressed. This wonderful story of inversion that brings about a very important hope. A hope that the whole world might understand the word to which we have all been longing to experience love. Love which covers over a multitude of wrongs. Love which does not hold those things in grudges. Love that forgives. Love. And this was written into the prophecy. This is the things that they have been told to be looking for. And so what is happening here is an echo of what Isaiah had said in chapter 49 of his book. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him. And that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. And yet God says to this servant, he says this, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant simply to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. Rather this, I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation might reach the ends of the earth. Thus, says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One. So this is the, the prophecy of the servant, the Messiah that's to come. To one deeply despised and abhorred by the nations, the servant of rulers, kings shall, rise, shall see and arise, princes, and they shall bow before. Right? Prostrate to bow. And shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful. The Holy One of Israel has chosen you. And so we see in this text, in this ancient prophecy, a hope that what is transpiring here before our literary eyes, that as the Magi bow before Jesus, they are living out Jeremiah's or Isaiah's words. And it highlights a much greater truth that the salvation that has come to Israel is to come to the end of the earth. Hope is not limited to you it's not limited to me. It's not limited to Israel. Hope is to go everywhere. 
I don't like the sentimentalizing of Christmas because I feel like that... How many of you have a Christmas family thing coming up? How many of you? Anybody? And how many of you are going to have a thin veneer of peace just right over the top? Just right over the top. Like it's Christmas and so we're going to get along. How many of you have actually thought it's Christmas? So how many of you have said to your spouse, it's Christmas, we're going to get along? <laughs> My brother-in-law's coming today, guys. I'm just, I'm just kidding. Jason's great. He's, he might hear this. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> you know, it's, it's Christmas, we're going to get along. Serenity now. That's not what Jesus came to give you. That is not what Christmas is about. It is not about pretending that there are not tears, that there are not scars, there are not wounds, there is not injustice, there is not evil. Christmas is not about pretense. Christmas is about the truth. The truth that old grudges can be forgiven. Old debts can be forgiven. Old tears can be dried. Old scars, which might even just be presently open wounds that we have bandages over, these things can be healed. That whatever in us runs deepest and darkest, the answer to that has come. The hope for healing has come. And if we would but turn ourselves toward that hope, healing would come. And yet everything within us rebels against that. Everything within us. And it doesn't matter whether you're standing behind a pulpit preaching or whether you're sitting there sleeping. (laughs) It rebels against it in me. It rebels against it in you because the evil in us resists the truth. The darkness in our society, in our world, which is ever deepening, resists the truth. It resists the light. It will do everything that it can to fight against it. And yet even though we constantly say no to God and wander off, the ancient word of the prophet still rings forth. Made true in Jesus in a new way, Ezekiel puts it this way. For thus says the Lord God, God speaks with a booming voice. Here is what I will do. I, I myself, will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep who have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, but the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. In this holiday season, if what you find in yourself is something broken, Jesus is the answer. But oh, how evil resists, doesn't it? How evil resists. And Herod is this living proof, this living ravenous, almost unanswerable proof for the magi are warned in a dream and they go out and 
Joseph is also warned in a dream that Herod will rage. And so he takes Mary and the child and they go down to Egypt to fulfill the word of the prophet. The word of the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. And you might remember God calling his sons and daughters out of Egypt prior to this. This ring a bell. Big famous bearded guy did it. Not me, another famous bearded guy. Out of Egypt I have called my son. That, that is being recapitulated. It's happening again in Jesus. Only here it's, reading, it's reaching its crescendo. It's reaching its apex. It's reaching its fulfillment. God is pulling now once the one true son, the one who can rescue all of his people. And not just his people, but the ends of the earth might be swallowed up in his love. Here he will call him out, but as they flee, Herod rages. We read in verse 16 of chapter 2. Then Herod, when he had saw that he was tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all of the male children in Bethlehem and all the region that were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. This too fulfills the words of the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah. Weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because there are, they were, they are no more. And if you've ever been with a mother who has lost a child, they cannot be comforted. There isn't an answer for that. And what's so scandalous about the way this text rolls is that there's no answer for it here either. It just moves into the next story, into Jesus. There's no answer for this. This this immense act of horrific, unexcusable evil. And I wonder, why don't we teach our children about that? I don't actually wonder that. I understand why this doesn't make it into our Christmas story. It is nevertheless in the biblical Christmas story. This is all one pericope. This is all one chunk. This is all one story. And it must be there for a reason. And I think the reason is this. The reason is this. The reason is that evil will always resist what is good. That the Bible pulls no punches. It covers nothing over. It doesn't pretend like the world is anything than what it is. It is a mass, a wash in darkness. And that every time love peeks its head up, hate rises up to meet it and will seek to destroy it every time. Whether we're talking about things that we can see or whether we can, or we're talking about the things that we cannot see as Revelation tells this exact same story, only it folds Herod and Satan into one character because really the powers and principalities, the things that we see and the things that we don't see are very much together in their movements and activities. But even as we might lay blame on Herod and all of his wickedness, have you not resisted love this week? Have you not resisted good? And has not every moment that you sought love or good been met at the same point with, even in your own heart, a desire to do that which was wrong? The one thing I can tell you about being Christian is it will not make your life easier. You can always tell a liar behind a pulpit because they won't tell you that. Because as soon as you emerge out of sin, as soon as you step out of darkness, and as soon as you stand into light, the darkness wants you back. 
This is very well put by John Bunyan in his ancient book where Christian tries to leave the city of destruction, but Apollyon, the great demon, comes forward and says, you cannot leave. And we sense this in us, don't we? Every time I'm about to do something that I know is good, there's something that arises within me to say, no, let's do something else. Every time that you say to yourself, this is what I want and I don't care how this will hurt the people around me, and you say it all the time, you act as Herod. It's the same impulse on a smaller scale for sure, but it's the same impulse. When you want to hold fast to what you have, protect and guard and hold and hold off the world, anytime you do that, you give in to that hate. And you seek to snuff out love. And so what we see in this story is just that. At the very time that the salvation of the world. You remember that this is in Matthew. The angel comes and announces to Joseph and says he will save his people from their sins. And immediately arises what? The great enemy to try to snuff it out. Brothers and sisters. It will rise in you. And around you. And what you must understand about your life. It is largely a war for your soul. And everybody wants it. Everybody wants it. Everyone wants your eyes now, right? You get that. Every time I turn on the computer, Google knows what I want to buy. Because it's worse now than ever. They want you. And so does God. And you must ascertain. You must ascertain who truly has your best interest in mind. Who truly loves you. Who has demonstrated that love to such an extent that they would give of themselves to you before they ever ask anything from you. Very few people will even do that for a friend. And yet even as you move away, and here is another great risk of of Christmas. (laughs) Even as you move away, and even as you resist and say, no, no, I shall cling to love. No, no, I will follow the cross. No, no, I will resist all of the darkness. The darkness will whisper to you again. And it will say to you, well, it's too late for you. You're too far gone. You can't be healed. You can't be changed. But to quote a song from another Christmas favorite, Andy Gullahorn sings, It is not too late to come clean, to face all the fallout that might be. And it's not too late to understand that grace is more than a concept to believe in. It's something more real than your beating heart, and it goes to the very depths of where you are. And it runs to where you are, tracing your path, whispering over and over again, it's not too late. And so, brothers and sisters, friends from possibly far away, Christmas is a time of great joy because it is a time where we face the really real. It is a time when we see sin and it's, it's darkest. So dark it can't recognize innocence. Sin at its darkest as we recognize it within us. But hope, 
hope also dawns. It dawns in this beloved prophecy that we see fulfilled with the coming of these magi, of these people, foreigners, enemies, strangers, far off, estranged from God, coming near to his feet. That the salvation of God might reach the ends of the earth. And so it might be appropriate for us to make St. Ephraim's song our song. For his last line in that great hymn is this. Let my supplication draw nigh to thy door. Yea, my poverty to thy treasury. For within the treasury of God is great wealth and great grace, great meaning and great power. Strength but wrapped in humility and an invitation to all. A great and powerful truth that love has indeed dawned. Not Hallmark love, not Hollywood love, not not sentimentalized love, but love that takes the meaning of a cross, the meaning and face of God, who reaches out with his own hands and arms to sweep you up into his healing power. For it is true. It is true. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. Let's remember that as we stand and sing this song.